Hello, I am Brendan Long, a Senior Research Fellow at Charles University, and welcome to my sixth podcast called The Long View. The Long View is a series of podcasts devoted to looking at the economics of the COVID crisis, also its social effects, particularly with a focus on the Canberra region, but also with a focus on uh, areas of economic disadvantage. And my guest today is again a very welcome guest, and that is Professor Brenton Prosser, who is the director of NATSEM, which is the National Centre for uh, Economic Modelling, Social and Economic Modelling, National Centre for Social and Economic Modelling. And uh, he's here to discuss some new and interesting research that NATSEM has produced, um, which helps us to analyse the social effects and economic effects of COVID in a timely way. Um, thank you for joining us today, Branton. My pleasure, my pleasure to be back. Uh, we had the, ple the pleasure of Branton's company uh, on an earlier podcast, which was interesting. And uh, we're really developing those themes here today. So, Brenton, what is the um, what is the nature of this new research that NatSEM has uh, been able to produce? Yeah, what we've attempted to do is uh, an approach called uh, nowcasting, where we're trying to bring together different forms of data uh, from the period. Uh, that relates just before and after COVID and get a snapshot of what the impact's been on the economy, particularly household incomes. Uh, the, what's particularly challenging for policymakers is the way that uh, data is collected and uh, released. It can sometimes take up to two years before data is publicly available. So that's a long time to wait for a policymaker. So the mm -hmm. approach that we've used has actually... Um, uh, sought to capture data from between February and June this year, so just before the COVID impact, um, and then uh, right right through to the middle of the year. So often you have to uh, historically looking at distributional data. It's my experience that you rely on some of the ABS surveys. Um, house surveyed income and housing is one of the better ones, but it, gee, it's been a long while between drinks for that survey, I think, hasn't it? Yes, and I think the last release of that is 2018. So for waiting yeah. for, the, for today's data to come out, it'll be potentially 2022. So what we did in the outcasting approach was we um, took the monthly labour force figures, which, as you know, yeah. un unemployment um, is based around, although that doesn't tell you income. We looked at the weekly one-tap payroll records yeah. and those sharing with the ABS. And then what we took out of the uh, the uh, social uh, income and the housing data is the, uh, I suppose, the composition of the particular figures. And what I mean by that is we didn't look at the volatile things that might have been changed, but the relationship between different pay groups, likelihood to be first to be unemployed, those sorts of things, you can still predict that because um, uh, enterprise agreements and labour conditions aren't changing as fast as some of the data. And then we combine it with NatSEM's STINMOD modelling, which is our tax transfer and welfare payment um, uh, tool. And together, these four things enable us to produce a picture of what's happening with household income in the period to February to June this year. So it's interesting that you can get the... Um well, you can do with the unemployment series through the labour market series, um, but uh, you know the uh, you're able to 
so how, how do you sort of cross tabulate the labor market data against income data to be able to uh, find out the distributional effects? Um, that's uh, That sounds like an innovative technique. Yes, and it is, and it's uh, it's a the formula that we de developed um, that basically uh, it seeks to um, uh, with a high level reliability model and then test. So we actually tested back against the un unemployment figures and found that um, our modelling results sat pretty much in between uh, what we were seeing on that what we would expect on the household survey, which is the one that's right. less current in the ABS data. Um, so yes, uh, our team, I mean, I'd have to get our, our uh, specialist, Professor Jinjing Li, talking through the specific formula, but we uh, took special efforts to make sure that the modelling actually fits within the realms of, uh, of uh, what we know are reliable results. Yeah, yeah, no, it's just interesting to be able to use the, uh, to try to find an innovative way to, to update an original ABS series. So that, that sounds interesting using current labor market. Well, as you, as you know, with, as you know, with modeling, it's always an approximation. And yeah, yeah. so we can probably, we can, we could do this every month with the payroll data, but we're more yeah, likely to do it. Or even every fortnight. Do it every three months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But again, you need a little bit of length to see the change. And the most significant change we saw was the Gini index, which measures income uh, inequity. Uh, that changed 0.03 in three months. Now, to put that in context, yeah. the Gini index would normally change 0.01 in a year. So we saw more change in three months than we would normally see in three years. And this was largely, would have to largely come down to the government's policies around childcare, JobKeeper and JobSeeker. Interesting. Um, does, do we get a sense from the data whether there's any one cohort that seems to be more affected by the economic effects of COVID? I'm thinking in particular um, uh, sole parents, um, that whether, they're, um, whether they're the ones that are sharing the bearing the burden more significantly than other cohorts. Is there any insights from the data into those different you know, family type compositions? We haven't dug down into the demographic data at this stage. What we've done is we've looked at it in quintiles. And so right. the hardest hit quintile is actually uh, the second quintile. So the, the yeah. bottom 20 to 40%. Um, yeah. So they, they uh, had, um, uh, so in terms of, uh, uh, unemployment. So March and April and May were probably the biggest hit for unemployment. And so quintile one, the bottom 20% had about 10% job losses, while quintile two had around 14% of job losses. Uh, the rest of the population had around three to 6%. Yeah. Uh, by June, that had begun to plateau back out. So the bottom two quintiles had come back down to 10% and the, the rest are at 5%. But in terms of um, uh, household uh, uh, income. We were predicting that the bottom quintile would go down three to four percent, and the second bottom would go down about ten percent. Uh, right. But instead, what was the bottom quintile went up by twenty-four percent, uh, while the remainder went up by eight point four percent. So it's quite a dramatic turnaround when you think that it's going from a negative to swing back to the positive. Our supposition around why quintile twos probably had the biggest hit is because there are members in quintile one that are already receiving welfare payments yeah. and some can actually buffer some of the impact, but a little bit higher up, you're feeling the full impact of uh, losing your job. 
That's interesting, so yeah, but these, these people are still not wealthy people in the second quintile. No. So this is like people win about $45,000 a year, something like that, probably. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're low-wage people uh, on minimum, you know, on low, for example, retail workers, that sort of person. Yeah. It would be in this category. Uh, or part-time workers, part-time uh, so parents, I would have thought. Um, so yep. the um, tourism, tourism industry, tourism was industry was was in there. Interestingly, the growth the growth industries were around facilities and home services uh, and technology. Um, so that's I think it's got to do with people being home more and spending more on utilities and services at home. But the other interesting one was actually a decline in the health and social services sector, which one might have thought uh, might increase with the demand. But it could be that people uh, have been putting off services because of the concern of the potential contact with, with someone and um, um, contracting COVID. So there's some interesting uh, questions to be uh, thought through around the different patterns, even within the changes in the income by industry. So the STP, it's, the, it's interesting to use the STP date, that's the touch payroll uh, database within the ATO. Oh yeah, I mean, I look at this every fortnight, it comes out every second Tuesday, as you know. And the uh, to be able to use that to, you know, unpack the distribution impacts quite novel because as you know that doesn't happen with the ABS's data. They just produce you employment. They do produce wage data, but it, it's just as an aggregate wage bill spend and, and a number of payroll jobs. So I think what's innovative is to be able to then drill that down to the uh, where you've got the level of um, you know actual income reports. So um, how are the top cohorts going? Um, it's it's all relative. They've taken taken a hit, yes, but yeah. they have a in some in cash terms, uh, the hit is sometimes larger. But it's actually the proportion uh, of uh, income they have as a as a buffer. So that no no quintile's been untouched. That's right. quite clear. But at the at the quintile four and quintile five, there tends to be more resources uh, for people to you know, mitigate for for the impact. Yeah, sure, yeah, um, sure But sure. it's certainly the case. Of that. Yeah. But I mean, the interesting thing about the approach is now now casting has been used um, in Europe, Italy, UK, um, uh, quite extensively. And with COVID, but what's been unique around our approach is that the capacity brings together the 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 survey of income and housing. Um, yeah. The uh, monthly labour force to, to kind of get a unique Australian response. Um, so it's been a very pragmatic, well, rigor, well, technically sound. It's been a very pragmatic way of looking. At what have we got? What do we can use and be innovative? Yeah, and um, so the and also timeliness is is the thing. I mean, it doesn't seem to me that there's much use in doing too much retrospective about what happens. You know, two years away, looking back and telling us what we should be doing now. This is the sort of time when policymakers need to have guidance as to what is the scope of the economic effect. I mean, I am worried about the step down that happens today in JobKeeper and JobSeeker, but JobKeeper in particular. Um, clearly, some of these numbers that you're presenting are reflecting the income stimulus of JobKeeper in its current form. Now, your next run, uh, whenever that is, Brenton, will be really interesting because then you'll be modelling the <laughs> step down in JobKeeper and then we'll really know 
yeah. add quintile two is really going to be hit. Um, what do you expect to happen uh, in your next analysis? Well, I mean, we're very careful to, to talk about what we know rather than predict and speculate. Yeah. When policy settings are changing by the day, we've got a budget yeah. in a, a couple of weeks. But it wouldn't be it would it wouldn't be unreasonable to think that if there's been uh, uh, the increase of three years in three months, if those measures were to be reversed, things would go the other way. Now, the government may have other policy initiatives in mind, um, yeah. but but if you just base it on the data that we looked at to see such a significant jump. For things to be phased back, uh, you would you would assume they would go back the other way, and income inequity would uh, return to previous levels. Yeah, and uh, the uh, or return to previous levels or fall below previous levels. Well, that, 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 that's I mean, we'll be we'll be probably every couple of months we'll be coming back and we'll be having this this tool to be able to take a snapshot and and say to policy leaders, okay. Decisions that have been made are made for a range of reasons, not just economic. Um, but we can tell you that this is what's happened over the, you know, over the last few months, and um, you can see the impact of those decisions. Yeah, so that's the interesting one. Like we will tell government what, whether JobKeeper Mark Two, JobKeeper in this current now form in you know September, in September after September 28 today, whether that really has been able to you know, not just keep people in jobs, but it's also keep people out of poverty. And um, that's what your research can show. Sort of, if you were to say the analysis so far, I mean, would you say that your research probably indicates that JobKeeper in, in its form as it was last night, um, you know, has had a pretty material impact overall in um, sustaining people who could otherwise be vulnerable from the full effects of the COVID crisis? I mean, what, what's what's your data show about JobKeeper so far? Does it give a pretty good tip? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the important thing to note is that we fused all three, the JobKeeper, JobSeeker and the childcare subsidy together. And that's the, the nature of how the STINMOD model right, works. Yeah. It yeah. takes, its power is in its integration. Because if you know, if you shift a, a threshold of one place, it'll have impacts at other parts of the welfare. Yeah payment system. So uh, we didn't we didn't delineate each of the policy measures out individually. Um, so I think it's fair to say, um, I think it'd be fair to say the JobKeeper and JobSeeker is likely to have um, a larger uh, impact on the lower quintiles. Um, and maybe the childcare subsidy had more impact on other, uh, more evenly across the board. But I can't give you a definitive answer because of the way the model worked actually combined. I mean, and there was also uh, looking ch uh, changes around looking for work requirements. There's a range of other things that were part of the government's response. Sure. To sure. um, what would be interesting too, and I suppose you should conclude here, is I'm worried about uh, how participation requirements under the new regime for job seeker are going to work. There are no jobs out there for people, unless there may be some jobs in certain specialised sectors. But if you're in Victoria, um, it'd be very, very hard to find anyone, it'd be very hard to be able to work. Um, so I'm worried that it'd be interesting to see whether those, if there's any effect of, um, the mutual obligation uh, requirements uh, and whether that shows up at all in your next data set. I know you don't model necessarily. Well, actually, the, does the does NATSIM actually focus on 
particular unemployment benefit cohorts. So, for example, particularly who we people who we would have traditionally described as in the New Start cohort or the Youth Allowance uh, Unemployed cohort. Um, I think the, uh, the stigma does actually capture those populations, doesn't it? Yes, and we also have geospatial mapping that we use. Yeah. So that can convert from uh, LGA, SA4, postcode to a consistent SA2, and then yeah. map, and that, and that opens up possibilities around a whole range of demographic, demographic groups and synthesising data. So certainly we've done mapping around uh, uh, economic disadvantage, health access, where we break it down into the different demographic groups. Uh, that's Stidmod does some of that, but to get the full demographic picture, you have to integrate it with other with other data sets. Um, so that's uh, that's something that's something we would be looking to do down the down the track. But um, clearly, different policies have impacts on different groups in the community. Um, one of the groups that I'm particularly interested in is regional Australia, yeah. and, and and regional towns or cities that have been dependent on one industry. Um, and that industry has has um, has ceased, and it's, they've been sustained through job keeper and job seeker. But what happens when job keeper and job seeker cease or transition out? What happens to those towns? And it's not just the workers; it's the partners that may be working in service industries and that sort of thing. So, I think I think there's a real challenge for uh, potentially for regional Australia. And so, map, mapping is a really interesting way to have a look at how things play out differently in different places. And we know. That the impact of, of this has been very different, even within uh, within or between suburbs of Canberra. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, and um, the uh, the only thing to conclude then is, you know, I'm taking interest in Canberra, in particular as an economist in the region. But that I've noticed that uh, a Canberra's unemployment rate, according to the not unemployment rate, Canberra's payroll job rate, according to the single touch payroll system released last Tuesday shows that from the 14th of March, the beginning of COVID, until now, there are 4.5% less of payroll jobs than there were previous to COVID to 14th of March. Now that's way on the national average there, right on the national average at 4.5%. Wages have fallen by 2.8% compared to 4.3% nationally, as in the ACT. So there's been, in, you know, obviously, Wages haven't fallen. The wage bill hasn't fallen in the ACT, but employment has. So that's interesting because you'd think that we would have been more insulated because of the public sector. But what that really must be showing is that the private sector in, in the Territory is taking a fairly substantial hit. And um, if you've got the national average at the same, but you've got a massive public sector that's insulated, you could even argue that the private sector in Canberra might be taking an even bigger hit than the national average, in terms of employment, that is. So, anyway, that's spreading lots. Yeah. I think, I mean, we that caught our attention in the NATSEM office and we had a chat about it. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, one of, one of the things we noted is those those payroll figures can be one-off, a bit yes. more, so there's yeah. always a better caution. But I still take the point. Um, I think one of the things that's interesting about that Canberra may be a fairly stable town in terms of, uh, you know, universities and public sector, but there's actually a lot of associated jobs with those that are that are more vulnerable. So if we just think of the university context, I mean, there's been some publicity about academics uh, losing yeah. work, but before that conversation starts, there's a whole lot of part-time casual sessional work 
that would be teaching that that's gone already that hasn't been um, put in place uh, this year. Um, if, if you think about the retail on the university sites without any students at all, um, yeah. the the cafes and the, all those are, are, are struggling to stay afloat. So even though our core um, industries may be relatively stable, there's a lot of secondary uh, work that is, is remains quite vulnerable. Now, imagine um, the cafes and civic must have been struggling with none of those international students. But anyway, um, mate, uh, now, Professor Prosser, it is always a pleasure to engage with you. Thank you for joining me and joining us on The Long View. Thank you. It's a pleasure.